better for us that he's bringing. We can be a, a hopeful people because of what Christ has done. But we need to take a moment and sit in and reflect upon the reality of our own rebellion. That the same people that waved the, the, waved the, the palm branches and sang the songs to honor the coming king are the same ones that days later turned on Christ and yelled, crucify him. And that is you and that is me. And Christ suffered on our behalf. So today we're going to consider Christ's day in court. And we're going to consider the cost that he paid to make atonement for our sins. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. And we're going to look and read this morning verses 1 through 16. John 19, 1 through 16 says this, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again and saying, Hail the king of the Jews! They slapped him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify him! Crucify him! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize that I have power to either set you free or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend to Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Well, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed them over to them to be crucified. We can continue on and we see Christ hanging on the cross. But we see several things that happen in this, this first section of the scripture focuses on Christ's day in court and how things played out for him. We, we could step back a step further and we could see Jesus um, at, in front of the Sanhedrin and, and in the Jewish courts. And we could see Jesus being set up against and juxtaposed against Barabbas, this, this terrible killer and rebel of the day, and them having to choose or be given the ability to choose between the two, and, and them choosing to set free a convicted murderer rather than Christ, someone they know full well is innocent. And we see in this story, as it plays out, Jesus being given all the symbols of royalty, but denied 
the requisite respect that went with it. We see Jesus being brought in and, and being recognized and hailed as king. And, and it's interesting to me, and it just jumped off the page at this very moment, that, that the, the call and the chant of the, the Romans as they mocked Jesus is just a Latin derivation of what they had been calling as the, Jesus had come into the city. Hail, hail the king of the Jews! Was that not exactly what the people were calling just days earlier? Essentially, God save the king in Hebrew or Aramaic. They've got it right. <laughs> this, this person coming in is in fact a king. and Not just a king, the king of the universe, the creator of the universe. And they gave him the signs of royalty, the symbols of royalty, but denied him the respect. Flogging was a terrible punishment that you wouldn't worse, wish on your worst enemy. But you know what's interesting to me as I studied the text this week is that the lone kindness and the closest thing that Jesus gets to justice in the entire story is the flogging. It feels very dirty and icky to say that. To think about the fact that this pre-beating is actually the best thing that happens to Jesus in the entire story. And you may be sitting there thinking, that is the dumbest, craziest thing I've ever heard. You better have something to back this up. Well, you're lucky I do. <laughs> Pilate is actually choosing the lesser of two evils here. And, and if we want to be technical, he's choosing the lesser of three evils. Because what is it that the people want? They want crucifixion, right? They want them to take Jesus out and to torture him to death. And Pilate's like, no, let's just whoop him a little and see if that works. Now, what, what we lose is, is some translation things between the languages. We've talked about this before, that English, in order to say something, you've got to use like five words to say something you can say with one word in the Greek or Hebrew. Well, interestingly enough, if you look at the Greek, in Greek they actually had three different words, at least three different words for flogging. Three different words for flogging. Now the first word, the word that we most often think of, is fragelu. Everyone say that with me. Fragelu. Fragelu. All right, one more time. I'm going to count to three, and we're going to do it together. All right? I'm going to direct like Nathan. One, two, three. Fragelu. Okay, there we go. So that, that is the first word. And this is what we normally think of when we think of flogging. The scourging, right? That where, where they've got the, the terrible whips that, that have the pieces of bone or the pieces of lead or the pieces of stone that, that they would hit the criminal with and they would grip to the skin and they would pull flesh from the body. That's what we think of, right? That's what the pictures show. And Jesus did experience that kind of flogging, just not here. There's actually two floggings of Jesus, if you put the Gospels up against one another, two floggings of Jesus that take place. This first one that happens when he first comes before Pilate, and a second before he goes to the cross. The second one is Fragelu. The second time of, of, of flogging that we're going to talk about for our purposes today is Mastagu. Everyone say that with me. One, two, three. Mastagu. Okay, Mastagu is a lesser type of of flogging. It's like, it's going to beat you up a little bit. 
Like the first one for Jelu was meant to rip flesh and you were to be maimed or killed by it. Like the end result of that kind of flogging was that the criminal not live to talk about it. That you died. The first or the second one that we're talking about, it might be what we would consider a punishment for a more misdemeanor type crimes. Like they want you to know that you did something wrong and you shouldn't do it again. But they're not trying to kill you. They're not trying to permanently break you. They're just trying to dissuade you from doing whatever it is that you've done again. It sends a message to the violator. It's actually the same word that's used often in the Bible when it says, Whom the Lord loves, he chastiseth, he punisheth, he mastagu is the word that's used. It's a punishment meant to redirect And here, this is what Pilate offers. The goal is not killing, but correction. Now, the Jewish leaders had been looking for a way to kill Jesus for quite a while. We've actually been talking about it here at the church for several weeks, that we could go back as far as chapters 10 and 11, and and they're looking for a way to stone or kill Jesus, and it just keeps not working for them. So finally, they have him here before Pilate. They decide to crucify him. But can't do it without Pilate's approval. Historical record tells us that Pilate was a terrible, terrible human being. That he was incredibly violent. That he was power hungry. That he was dishonest. So consider that. That in the story of Christ's trial, conviction, and crucifixion, Pilate is actually the most decent human being in the story. P- Pilate is the only one that is making an a- actual concerted effort to save Jesus's life. Now we, we could argue that he's doing it in a really poor way because he's the governor, right? He's got the might of Rome's army behind him. He could just say, I'm going to give justice to Jesus. I'm not doing what you want me to do. We're not going to punish him. Pilate says clearly, I know that he's innocent. I find no basis for your charges, but still roughs him up. Pilate is trying to placate the Jews so he can let Jesus go. Tells us that clearly as we get down in verses, in verse 12 it tells us that from then on Pilate tried to set Jesus free. That's why Pilate, in, in, in the first part of chapter 19, first thing we see is Pilate having him flag, flog, and then Pilate bringing him back up there says, there, are you happy now? Can we meet in the middle? Is this good enough? Pilate is trying to placate the Jews so he can save Jesus' life. The lessened beating of Christ is the most respect and the closest thing to justice that Jesus is given in the entire story. How horrible is that? That the first brutal beating is the best thing that happens to him. The most respect he's given. But the soldiers didn't just beat him. They also mocked him. And it's the most horrible of ironies that the mocking of violent men as they beat Christ was the closest thing to a coronation Jesus received this side of heaven. Tells us in 
verse 2, that the soldiers placed a, a crown of thorns on Jesus' head. And, and I've often thought about that, and we, we've, we've probably talked about it before, you've heard it talked about before, that a, a crown of thorns, we actually have one up on the cross right now, and I can hardly pick it up without stabbing my hands. I can only imagine what it's like having it placed on someone's head, and we know that more than likely they didn't do it gently. That it was slammed on the top of Christ's head. And there were two purposes to the crown of thorns. The first is obvious. It was meant to hurt. It was meant to cause pain. But the second that goes along with it was that it was in fact to mock Christ. Now you may think to yourself, well that's pretty obvious. That the mocking and the pain and the beating, that all kind of goes together. But it mocks Christ in a very specific way. Because the crown of thorns and the, the, cor- the thorns pointing out, if you did it in the right way, the crown was to represent the crown of a, an ancient Near Eastern god or goddess. And oftentimes they had, they had crowns that looked like thorns and perhaps we've even seen them. You can look at a lot of different art from back in the day and, and you may see a crown with like beams of light coming off of it, right? And so what they are doing is they're mocking Christ's claim to be the Son of God, to be this the Son of a divinity. Oh, you're Son of God? Well, we better give you the appropriate crown. Meant to, to both cause pain and to mock and make fun of the claims of Christ. They placed a purple robe over his beaten shoulders. Purple being the imperial color, the color representing royalty. And that royalty would, would wear as it processed in to render judgments. And then borrowing from the chant that these very soldiers probably used to honor Caesar, Ave Caesar, their God King, they chanted, Hail Jesus, Hail King of the Jews. Rather than bowing in submission as they would have to Caesar, they raise their hands in violence to the King of Kings. They rebel. Now we, we, we like to read this story and, and perhaps it, it brings up a tinge of sadness in us because Christ suffered such terrible indignities. And perhaps we look at Pilate and we might, we, we might relate to the reality of his political difficulty that he was facing. But, but don't respect his inability and, and unwillingness to make a decision that was for Christ's benefit rather than his own. But if we reflect on the reality of what happened here, we must ask ourselves, are we really that different than they? Are we really that much better than the soldiers? And if we want to create a hierarchy of sinfulness, we could certainly find a way to excuse ourselves and say, well, I've never beaten anyone to death. I've never crucified. I've never falsely testified against someone in Christ uh, in, in court. But, but I, I want to be specific about the, the principle of the sin against Christ himself, right? I want to focus on that. The attitude and the actions towards Christ. Not, not the exact things they did, but the attitudes and the underlying principle that comes out that was guiding their living. So I want to ask a couple questions. Do we not, like Pilate, count the cost and at times find the price higher than we're willing to pay? So rather than offering Christ what he deserves... We offer what we can without injuring our own prospects. 
Is that not what Pilate did? Hey, so Jesus, I know you're not guilty, but I'm just going to have you beat up a little bit. It's not as bad as it could be, Jesus. I'm, I'm, trying to like, I'm trying to get on board with what you got going on here. Like you can see that Pilate even has, has some kind of understanding of the claim of Son of God because it tells us in John here that, that claim is he's the Son of God. And Pilate's like, whoa. Pilate immediately asks him, where are you from? Like, Pilate is not asking him, oh, are you from Jersey? Like, that's not what he's asking Jesus. He's asking Jesus, hey, are you from here or are you from there? Be real with me, Jesus. Level with me. Because if I'm dealing with a God king, I don't want to upset you. And Christ is like, I, I have nothing to say to you. But are we better than Pilate? Do we not offer to Christ in our own lives the lesser of evils rather than the greatest of goods that he requires from us? And, and only you can answer that for you. But I'll be honest I'll be honest about myself that very often I try to find the path of least resistance. I try to find the portion that I can offer that's going to cause me the least amount of pain. I try to find a way to do what God has asked without creating too much inconvenience for myself. I don't know that we're any better than Pilate. I think that we look out for our own best interests and often Push Christ to the side, giving him maybe a little bit of something, but not what he's asked for or what he deserves. And by doing so, we deny Christ what is justly and rightly deserved. Let's think about, let's think about the soldiers, shall we? We may never have thrown fists at Christ or beaten him with a whip or shoved a crown of thorns on his head. But when we honor Christ with our mouths, then fail to give him honor with our lives. Do we not do the same as the soldiers? Is that not exactly what they do? Is that not exactly what happens? That they honor Christ with their mouths. Hail, King of the Jews! And then dishonor them with their actions. It's a stark contrast to how we function, but, but let's be honest with ourselves. That, is that not the reality? Is that not the quote that's out there on the Jesus Freak album? The, the, the greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians that come into church and acknowledge Jesus with their mouths, then go out and fail to acknowledge him with their lives. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And it's easy for us to point fingers at those that are worse than I, but that's me. That's you. That's us. We acknowledge Christ with our mouths, but then fail to do so with our lives. Sure, we're not drawing blood or doing physical harm, but we're giving the symbols of lordship without the honor and respect due to the Lord and King. Jesus was given symbols of royalty, but denied the respect. Jesus was innocent but chose to suffer at the hands of guilty, the guilty in order that the guilty might be declared innocent. This is, this is what's so amazing about this trial. I'm going to read that again. Jesus was innocent, but chose to suffer at the hands of the guilty in order that the guilty might be declared innocent. Everybody in the story knew that Jesus was innocent. Everybody knows that Jesus is innocent. They don't even try to hide it. You can go through John itself. Just in John, you can see that everybody knows that Jesus is innocent. 
You have the other Gospels, and it's even more clear. Verses 6 and 12, we see that Pilate clearly believed Jesus was innocent, so much so that he made efforts to save his life. Verse 12 also tells us that Jesus was uh, arrested by the Jewish leaders on falsified testimonies. And what is the crime that they've, they've, they've tried to lobby, levy against him? Well, it's sedition and rebellion. They say, anyone who claims to be king opposes Caesar. Now, you and I, if we look back, we know that their concern was not Rome. They were no friend of Caesar themselves. There's a whole lot of irony in them saying, who else is not a friend of Rome? They know that Christ hadn't done anything. Is, is this not the greatest irony, one of the greatest ironies in the, the Easter story? That the only reason that the crowd actually joined the, crowd, the chorus is that Jesus refused to engage in sedition and raise up a rebellion. I mean, had Christ led a rebellion as they're accusing him, everybody would have been good with that. The Jewish leaders themselves would have probably been okay with that. Christ is on trial precisely because he failed what they, to do what they expected and that of which they were accusing him. The Jewish leaders didn't care about any supposed crimes. They had no love for the Roman Empire or emperor. They were jealous that Jesus was stealing their crowds and Jesus was stealing their clout. Jesus was eclipsing their own aspirations and their own glory and their own lives. So something had to be done. The truth is that if we look at the story, Everybody but Jesus was guilty. Everybody but Jesus was guilty. They all failed the king. We could go back to John 18, 2 through 3, and we see that Judas betrayed Jesus, selling him into the hands of his accusers for 30 pieces of silver. Have you ever wondered how much that equates to in modern money? Like, I would think that that would be a goodly amount, right? Jesus did some pretty amazing things. It's about $250. Judas sold the perfect king of the universe for $250. Mark 14, 50, we see that all the disciples abandoned Jesus. They all fled, fled the scene following Jesus' arrest. If we were to go back again to John 18, we see that Peter publicly and vehemently and on multiple occasions denied even knowing Jesus. The Jewish leaders who had awaited Christ's arrival the longest and should have been the first in line to see and follow him lied and manipulated in order to achieve his execution. These are to be the people that are to be the paragons and the upholders of righteousness and justice for the people of God and they sold their birthright for a little bit of public reputation. The Roman soldiers mocked and beat Jesus. And ultimately it was them who killed him as they gambled for his possessions. And while Pilate made efforts to save Jesus' life, he stopped short of doing his job and securing justice for Jesus. He caved to public opinion in order to preserve his own position of power and to protect his own 
political standing. And we must include ourselves in this list. While our crimes and our guilt may be different than theirs, the Bible doesn't leave room for any of us to say, yeah, but I'm not guilty. All of us stand guilty in the court of the divine. Romans 3.12 says that all have turned away. All have together become worthless. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, that's the great truth about the crucifixion. The resurrection is great because we understand the, the victory of life, that death no longer has, has sting, that, that sin no longer has power over us, that we can die to our old selves and now live to a new self. But before we can die to ourselves, we need to be shown the path. And Christ had to die on the cross. And the greatest truth of the crucifixion story is that Christ did it by choice. Christ chose to sacrifice his divine rights and his very life in order that we might be declared innocent if we would only believe. We can look in the text. Jesus could have defended himself. Jesus could have offered a very articulate argument about why he was innocent he could have provided evidence. He, pro he probably could have called in witnesses if he wanted to. Christ could have made a spectacle of the court case and could have at least delayed what was going on. Had he wanted to, but Christ instead chose to keep his mouth shut. Christ himself said that in, in John 10, 18, that no one had the power to take his life. That he gave it freely. Christ went to trial. And ultimately to the cross by his own choosing. In obedience to the Father and for our benefit. Romans 3.23 again says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then if we continue on to verse 24, it says all have sinned, but all are justified, declared not guilty. Freely by God's grace, the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ. Christ chose to sacrifice his divine rights and his life in order to make available our salvation in our lives. But the choice then becomes ours. Will we accept, will we humbly throw ourselves on the mercy of the court, admitting our guilt, admitting our sin, and accepting the shame of that sin in order that we might receive the salvation that comes by grace through faith in Jesus. Understanding that his blood will wash away our sins. That his pain has purchased our pardon. And that by his grace, life now and into eternity can be ours. Jesus gave his life so that he could save ours. John 19, 17 and following, it says this. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. 
Many of the Jews read the sign. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the, the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answers, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. And this garment was seamless, woven into one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and his disciple, whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing, on, later, knowing that everything had now been finished, so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 1 John tells us that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but not only ours, for the sins of the world. The atoning sacrifice, that, that he is the sacrifice that takes care of what was owed. That his shed blood paid for our pardon. We couldn't afford the price of our failure. So Christ paid it for us. He made our salvation possible if we'd only believe and receive his gift. Jesus suffered terrible wrongs in order, order that we might be made right by faith through his grace, by his sacrifice. Christ took our day in court. So we who have failed the king might be made right so that we can participate in the kingdom. May we this day recognize Christ as our king. May we humbly come to his throne and accept his gift of grace, his salvation. The scriptures tell us that, that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that Christ was raised from the dead, that we will be saved. And this day we invite you to remember what Christ has done for you. And if you've yet to accept Christ as your Savior, I, I invite you to talk to myself or Pastor Nathan afterwards, and we would love to introduce you to the King of kings and the Lord of lords who sacrificed his life to provide you with yours. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. I thank you for your love that you continually bestow us upon us in great measure. And that, Lord, though we fail you time without number, that you continue to offer us forgiveness, grace, and mercy. God, we come to you today recognizing the gift of your love, the cost of our salvation, the reality of our failure. God, we pray that you would forgive us, that you would cleanse us, that you would walk with us, 
and that you would help us to live in the new life that you have provided through your death. In Jesus' name, amen.